was uh, just a blessing beyond words just to be able to, to, to walk life together with you all. And we're just, uh, it's just been such a joy um, to walk this. And for Peter and, da- and uh, Daniel when he was here and, um, and the elders just to invite me in to be a part of this family. This was uh, like a dream um, come true. And um, I would never trade it in for anything in this world. So thank you guys so much. Um, well, that kind of messed up my introduction, but that's okay. <laughs> Let me just pray. And um, uh, Oh, we do, we do want to thank you guys so much um, just for uh, loving us so well, just for caring for the elder nominations. We're just praying, and we're going to be processing that, and we're excited about the new season that God has us in. And so we're looking forward to what the Lord will bring and what he has in store for us. Let me pray for us as we get into God's word today. Yes, Lord, we just um, are just are just humbled, um, and I'm I'm humbled even just being here on this stage, and uh, just just overwhelmingly grateful for the love of of your church family, of just just as Megan has shared just so eloquently of just how she has come to and from and back from Dallas, and that storyline that season is over, and now she's back here at Hope and. Lord, she's come into maybe a different uh, people in which it looks different, but ultimately they're still the same people who are pursuing Jesus with everything they have in our brokenness, in our struggles, in in our fears, in our um, insecurities, and in our sadnesses and pains. Thank you so much for your hope, family. Um, and just this hope family that, Lord, though uh, the Lord may bring us into different seasons, Lord, we at the heartbeat of us, we want to pursue you with everything that we have. We want to surrender everything we have to you, God, in even our very lives. So, Father, I just pray that you continue to make us into that type, type of pe- people that just wants to go all out and be 100% surrendered. And Lord, you've spoken, Lord, just so much to me and even just my insecurities and my struggles even today and being able to preach and, and uh, even today and, and just, um, just, uh, just being a pastor and shepherding. Father, you um, just have just completely shown your faithfulness and your goodness. And so I'm so grateful for that. Thank you, God. We um, just pray that your spirit would be here and power now as we worship you, and as we come before your word, and we pray your spirit would just um, guide us, and, and, and thank you so, so much for this Hope family. Thank you that they shepherd my family, um, and even uh, my newborn, um, Micah, and um, so well in a way, um, in a way that I think it just represents, Lord, how your, your heart is for your, your family, for your brothers and sisters, for your church. And so thank you so much, God. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, um, I uh, definitely, <laughs> I'm preaching on hometown advantage, and uh, this is definitely not the uh, reception that Jesus ex- uh, received. Um, I'm definitely a hometown advantage today. If you look in your text today, we're talking a little bit about um, just how Jesus was was rejected, and um, one of our uh, kids' favorite movies and books is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 
and it just pictures this struggling town of Swallow Falls, and uh, which can only afford sardines. How many of all, how many guys love this movie as much as I do? I, I just love this movie. I can watch this over and over. I can listen to sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows every day, and laugh about the the guy with the macaroni that said he got he got a macaroni stuck on his head. That's what my when my kids love that part. But if you don't know the story, Flint Lockwood is an ultra geeky inventor that is laughed at and misunderstood by his peers, and he invents spray-on shoes only to realize that he hasn't um, hasn't hasn't invented the the antidote to take them off, and so he is just uh, ridiculed. He is made fun of um, uh, just for because he's different. He wants to please his dad, but he's destined, seems to be destined to work at the same bait and tackle shop that his dad owns. And his dad wants him to give up, but he has this incredible, uncanny ability to invent things that are way out of the box. And so one day, it works against him because when uh, the the town creates something called Sardine Land, he single-handedly destroys it with one of his uh, inventions until he realizes what it was. It was the Flint Lockwood diatomic super mutating dynamic food replicator or the If you didn't get that, watch the movie. (laughs) Um, But everybody hates him until that time where it's a machine that converts water into the atmosphere into food. And he starts making food just rain from the sky, whether it be steak, you know, coming down in this outdoor restaurant or spaghetti, just everything to order. And everybody everybody goes from mocking him to celebrate him. And that is until he, that the machine completely goes AWOL and has a mind of its own, causing spaghetti tornadoes and nearly destroying the town, nearly undoing everything that he's done and to save his town before they are buried under a mound of food. (laughs) I love that story because it just illustrates that everybody has a hometown. You may not have felt like that, but everybody may have felt like a Flint Lockwood. And if Jesus, and we believe in the incarnation of Jesus, we believe that Jesus has, has captured and experienced everything there is, the fullness of humanity, we can believe that he also had a taste of this, this uh, in his life too as well, growing up. He had a zip code. He had a hometown crowd of people who remembered him when he was in diapers, when he was just a wee little boy growing up and under his father in the carpentry trade. The Gospel of Mark affirms that Jesus probably says he's destined to continue his thriving family carpentry business. This childhood doesn't seem distinguished or special. He didn't win any student of the year award. He didn't win any valedictorian. Um, He was not uh, winning a, a scholarship. If anything, it was just a very common, forgettable, and probably just lackluster childhood leading into adulthood. There's nothing about him that would stand out. So when Jesus returns to Nazareth, do you think he would come back out to a hero's welcome? Here's a man who commanded huge crowds who made quite a name for himself. But the theme running through this chapter and throughout Matthew and the gospel from this point on forward is that hostility has hit its peak. Well, it seems like he's hit the top of his popularity as a preacher. It doesn't experience, he doesn't experience hometown advantage. In fact, his hometown dismisses his reception is ice cold. What was Jesus rejected for? Why was he not given a hometown advantage? And what was the cause of all that? Let's turn to 
quickly to uh, Matthew 13, 53 to 58. And God's word says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus did not experience hometown advantage, but rather hometown disadvantage. Where we are are in Matthew's gospel, if you track it along with us in this Matthew series, um, we're seeing just an increase in um, polarities. One commentator calls this a time of progressive polarization, especially between Matthew 14, 13, all the way to chapter 16, verse 20. And we see that both sides, for and against Jesus, gets increasingly more polarized, more politicized, and more divided. As Jesus goes deeper into his ministry, the more he will experience intense hostility and opposition. And while as that opposition sharpens, people like Jesus' disciples and the Gentiles will see more and more like Jesus' true identity clearly. Extending through this chapter is looming the deepening shadow of the cross of Christ. In fact, these next two sections, the response of his hometown crowd of Nazareth and Herod's beheading of John, it shows us that the people's rejection um, started with Jesus and also continued with all those like him, all the prophets, including John. But at the end of this, at the end of this this progressive polarization, we see it caps off with Peter's response that rings out crystal clear that Jesus really is the Christ. And so this is where we are in our, in our passage today and as we're moving forward. So let's dive into the text. When he taught in their synagogues, he was just met with a cold, cold response. Jesus signals the end of his, respons- of his discourse when he says, and when he finished all these things, he moved on from there. And so this is in a way transitioning him from moving um, away from teaching and to teaching by example, by heading to the cross. And so famous last words is so fitting for these sections. Every, every story from here bears weight and foreshadows Jesus' impending crucifixion. And Jesus moves inches closer to his death, and we see the anger and the hostility just coming up against him in crazy magnitude. And so he moves from there to his hometown of Nazareth. And you, you want to know where Nazareth is? I don't, I'm not even too sure exactly where Nazareth is. Um, it's a blip on the map. There was probably good reason. As people had said in that day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a backwards town. Everyone was destined for mediocrity here. And, and, and nobody was, uh, had a plan to, uh, to, 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 to rise out in worldwide global significance. So imagine when he goes back to the synagogues and he's reintroduced the rabbis there. And they're thinking to, here's this this ordinary boy who grew up here. Yeah, he probably graduated. He's probably going to take his dad's carpentry business over. And they can't picture anything else but this boy who is kind of lackluster and just ordinary in his life, his appearance, his knowledge, and, and just experiences. 
They remember him stocking up on wood and carving out things with his dad, making some tables or making um, some things with the, for the, the, the mud shacks and, and the mud bricks. Because this word can also mean builder in a time, a place where most things were made out of mud bricks. And so he could have had time building out as a contractor. And so what we see here is that through running through this town, all they remember is this was the little boy that grew up here and that's all they remembered. So imagine the rabbis customarily inviting him to teach as they would do with others and with other visiting preachers. And Jesus goes up there and he just blows them all away. Not only he strikes at the heart of them with his morality and his astuteness and his wisdom, but then he's also, um, from Mark's parallel passage, that we see that Jesus laid hands and healed a few people uh, that were sick there. These people are astonished because they have seen people who have taught, but they have never seen people who have had such authority that can also cast out illnesses with a word or with a laying on of hands. So they didn't question that Jesus had power. They didn't question that Jesus had wisdom. They questioned its source. Jesus had no formal rabbinic training. He didn't go to Dallas Theological Seminary. He didn't go to uh, Talbot School of Theology. He didn't have a, a rabbinical uh, a mentor. He didn't, he didn't have a dad who was a rabbi. Jesus simply was not trained in preaching or miracles. He was just trained in being an ordinary boy. So what is going on here that there's this kid from their hometown that was just like them. Hey, didn't we know his four brothers or his, his brothers, Simon and James and Joseph and, and Judas, are not all his sisters with us? So we, we see he came also. Um, I agree. I love it. Jesus came from a big family, at least five. <laughs> so that's why I tell you all, five is a magic number. <laughs> um, uh, and so... Nobody saw that Jesus was anything special. And I think this is really important for us to really grasp because we think that everything about Jesus was super special. Everything was super crazy, intense. But not his upbringing. You kind of think about why was there so little said about Jesus when he was younger? And that was just simply because they knew his family. He was common. He was from Nazareth. Nothing was expected out of him. And their response to them meant one thing. Jesus needed, they thought that Jesus needed to be boxed in to what they saw was acceptable. What they saw as the norm. What they saw matched his upbringing. And when Jesus crossed the line, they refused to believe in him. And in fact, take a look at the passage. They were scandalized by him. That's literally the word here. They were offended by him. The same word is used in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, where Jesus says that um, he, he, he talks about lust, and he says that if your parts of your eyes are causing you to lust, then tear it out from your eyes, right? And cut off your arms. If your left hand is causing you to sin, well, then cut it off, for it is better to be maimed than to enter to heaven rather than to have both hands and be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus was not advocating cutting off legs or, or, or arms or um, uh, tearing out your eyes as punishments as the Chinese did up into the past century, but making a point that we should be absolutely ruthless when cutting off our sin, especially when it is in rebellion against God. But in case they scandalized him. In other words, everything in the New Testament when it talks about scandals, it's, Jesus is right there in the thick of it. 
They scandalized them. They were offended by him. They rejected him to the point of calling him a dead man in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 30, where Jesus rolls out the scroll in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And he says, he reads the passage about the, the, the coming Messiah, who the spirit of the living God will be anointing him, causing him to, to set the captives free and, and to heal the sick and to exercise demons. And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd is just dripping with praises with him. But now the tone dramatically changes when he infuriates the crowd by that same sermon when he said that God had preference. He loved their enemies, the Gentiles, more than Israel. And that's where we read in Luke chapter 4 that they wanted, they gnashed their teeth at him and they were angry with him. They were not just angry, they were just, they were just bitterly upset to the point where they enraged, they were enraged, and they wanted just to kill Jesus. Run him off the cliff. What we see here is Jesus was no hometown hero. He was not getting any honor in his life. He was not giving any uh, credence to who he was as the son of God because they couldn't look past his, his background. They couldn't look, look, get past their old childhood memories of who they thought and who they saw and who they believed that Jesus would be. And I think that a lot of us, we do, if we were honest with ourselves, we have a, a hometown, we have a background, we have a childhood, and there are deep spaces in each of our hearts in which our childhood experiences, good or bad, mostly probably bad, has captivated us with Jesus or has literally just made us confrontative with Jesus. It has made us to the point where we are reacting like Jesus' hometown and saying, I don't believe this about you, God, because of what this happened in my childhood. I don't believe this, Jesus, because when my, um, maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe you're thinking, maybe my parents committed suicide. And I don't believe that you're a good and loving and faithful God. Where Jesus, you know, you wouldn't have let this happen to me if, uh, when I was ninth grade. That specific experience. And Jesus, I, I just don't believe in your love and your goodness. Well, how can you be sovereign and care for, for me? And so you might have these childhood experiences that literally in your hearts, in the crevices of your own soul, can be literally making you respond like this hometown crowd. And I, I just want us to simply ask the Lord and just pray and ask the Lord, is there, are there childhood hometown experiences you know, in which we have experience that is blocking us from the Lord, even right now, from believing the fact that he can move in your financial situation or that he can move in your family? Or that he can bring salvation and discipleship and joy to that person who is living in sin right now? Or maybe that you are struggling because you are dealing with grief that's so bad and so sad that you are just crying out and saying, God, you can never heal my heart. Where are the sources of unbelief in your heart? And I'd just like us to um, come before the Lord. Um, we don't usually pray in the middle of the sermon, but I'm going to do that. Let's just go ahead and spend some time with the Lord and um, ask him the safety of our own hearts, asking uh, the Spirit of God to silence all voices 
flesh the world and Satan, that you would ask the Lord, is there any areas of unbelief? Ranging from today or my childhood that is blocking me from believing who you are and all that you are. And if you are, then don't just follow it away, but ask the Lord to, and thank the Lord for bringing it to your attention, and ask the Lord to say, Lord, will you help me? I'm like the man who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I don't want anything to block me or scandalize me from trusting your faithfulness and your goodness, and, and ask that the Lord would Continue to help you process those things under his lordship and under his, his care that you would not hold these things against him. And that you would surrender them. Maybe there's bitterness and maybe there's shame and maybe there's forgiveness that needs to be extended. Ask the Lord and deal with it and ask and invite some people around you but in this moment, spend some time with the Lord and just ask him to help you minister to you in the way that only he does. God, you remember and you've known us. Even before we were in our mother's womb, you've known us. Lord, we cannot hide anything from you. And I pray that you would continue to seek, um, that we would continue to seek truth and continue to pursue you, that, that you would expose areas of unbelief or unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment of, that is stemming from unbelief. And uh, Lord, that we would bring those things to you to surrender those things and even come forward for prayer later on in our service or Invite a friend in our discipleship group or a home group or belong or a men's gathering and, and just invite them along with us in this journey of just helping us to root out unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, unbelief, I think, I feel so strongly about this because it can hinder what God wants, us, wants to do in us. Because in response, Jesus says that prophets are never without honor except with their, with, with their hometown crowd and their household. Usually it's the opposite way around when you come to the hometown crowd, just like this. I, you get welcome, you get celebrated, you get appreciated. But this is in part because of who Jesus was. He affirmed himself just by saying that no prophet is, you know, is given honor. He's affirming that he is a prophet. But rejection is going to be his middle name. And so whenever you speak the truth of God's word, you will find yourself being opposed 
you'll find yourself gritting and bearing it of saying the truth because you know it could possibly offend or can really hurt somebody, but yet at the same time, you realize that there are some words that needs to be communicated in a loving way. You cannot both be a Christ follower and popular. Jesus himself earned no brownie points in his hometown, and so what makes us think that we can be the most popular guy or gal in the world if we are truly following Jesus? Jesus was quick to remind them that he was not who they wanted him to be. He was who he came out to be, and he was called to fulfill his mission, which was to affirm not that he was just a mighty man or a sideshow circus act or a a gifted preacher, but that he was the coming Savior who would come and save sinful man from the penalty of their sins that has necessitated eternal death and has sent Jesus Christ himself to rescue us for his own kingdom for all eternity. You see, if you're new to us or if you're new to this, uh, this story of Christianity, we live in a fallen world. You see it everywhere. You see it in your own hearts and you see it in the brokenness out there. You see it in the brokenness within the church. And that there's a clash between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Satan had fallen before this world was created because he had jealously wanted to take the power and the glory and the honor due to God for his own soul. And for that, God knew and judged him along with a third of his angels. And they fell into the pits of hell. But Satan's not done yet. He and along with his demonic angels, once created for beauty and for worship and the glory of the greatest king of all the universe, now are trying to drive a wedge between them and their creator. Now the kingdom of, God, of Satan has infiltrated this world and tempted our forefathers, Adam and Eve, in, this, in the garden and by causing them to sin, by causing them to de-God God. By saying that, is God really good? Did you capture that? Is God Did God really say that? In other words, why would God withhold this? Maybe his intentions are not true. Maybe you should take a bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God is holding out on you. See how unbelief is rooted in every sin of lust, impatience, anxiety, um, bitterness, despondency, are the sin of unbelief took out the human race and has put a curse of death and sin into the world. And now, and before Jesus came, Satan was running the world, but not for long. The whole scriptures from Genesis 3.15 showed us this beautiful promise. This is Genesis 3.15 that God was sending a savior God was sending one to deal Satan a fatal blow. The whole scripture is prophesied of a prophet who was greater than Moses, who would not only preach the truth, but come to live and die to redeem men back to himself. One who, as Isaiah put it, he had no form or majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Amen? This was fulfilled in the person, the life, and the work of Jesus Christ. It came 700 days, 1,700 years to that day of Isaiah's prophecy and fulfilled it in 100% lockstep with the word of God. There on the cross, Jesus died, the most despised prophet in all of history for the world to show all for you and I. It's where he bore the wrath of God and judgment of our sin. That's where he took and destroyed Satan with one blow um, by Jesus dying on the cross, the sinless savior, the one who can atone for the, the sins of man. He took it upon himself. He exchanged our sin for his righteousness so that we can stand righteous before a holy God. And that's not the end of the game. On the third day, he proclaimed victory over death and sin and Satan. And the kingdom of God is open for all those who would take away their strongholds of unbelief and have their eyes opened and offer their lives in complete surrender. And I want to ask you, friends, where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand on the side of Nazareth or where do you stand on the side of God-given gifts of belief in him. Where do you stand? And I want to encourage us because this is saying, not saying to us that God is limited or that we can put God in a box that Jesus is somehow, you know, has his hands tied behind his back because of their lack of unbelief. I, I think it's clear from scripture that you can see that Jesus does not need faith to be able to work and move and do miracles. You look at the feeding of the 5,000, you look at the dead girl that was raised um, from the dead, you think about the Gerasene demoniacs who they were, he was completely over on the other side of the spectrum, he was opposed to God. And we see that Jesus remains powerful, no matter if you have faith or not. But God, in his glory and his goodness, he wants our faith. He uses our faith uh, to be able to partner with him, to be able to, to, to live life in him, and to invite us into this relationship. And I think Jesus is not just limited for want of power. I think it just really affected God's, Jesus' heart. I think it's just really grieved. And you know, when you're, when you're in grief and you're heavy in sorrow, you're receiving bad news. It just hits you like a battering ram, and, and it's just hard for you to do anything. You receive this bad news, and you just, you're struggling. And in, in the same way, it was difficult for Jesus. Even though he could have shown his power, it was not for want of power, but it's for the fact of his compassion that he was only able to do a few miracles there. We must make sure, church family, that unbelief doesn't hinder what God can do. Listen to A.W. Pink. He writes... Quote, unbelief is the cause of all our troubles and failures. This is, the the, this is the strategic point where Satan concentrates its forces against us. And therefore, it is here above all that we need divine help. There's nothing coming against us tonight than the unbelief that God is not working right now in your hearts and your souls according to the preaching faithful the faithful preaching of scripture and that's why we see the scriptures and expository preaching and the work of the elders and the work of proclamation of scriptures is such a big deal because it is literally communicating God's word life or death and we believe God at, at his word 
at who he says he is, and we believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the scriptures of what I preach to you today, that everything in this word is true, and that every sin, if there are sins of anxiety, it's rooted in unbelief. The question, is God really at work in my life? Does he really care for me? Is rooted in unbelief. Lust, is it really worth it for me to stay pure for my husband or my wife before marriage? Behind that is a temptation that God and sex and his design is not as good as what the scriptures tell us. Bitterness. You might be tempted to, go, to come against and to take vengeance on somebody who's wronged you, but that's an unbelief that God is really completely righteous in his ways. He takes vengeance in his own hands. He can take care of your positions and your problems and your issues way better than you can. Bitterness is swallowing poison and waiting for someone else to die. But one of the root ingredients of the bitterness pill is unbelief. Unbelief lays that out the heart of all the questions leveled at Jesus when he was in hometown. All these questions today are the same questions that we've received today. Will we war? Just as Megan had, had, had challenged us, are we the same people that we are pursuing in brokenness by his spirit, following Jesus into his plan of loving God and loving others and, and going outward? But at our heart of hearts, do we really believe in the hearts of our God? and the character of our God? Are we letting unbelief win the day? My prayer is that hope that our church family, that we would really believe that even though hope may change and hope may look different and the faces and the people and the lives look different, that our God remains the same, amen? He is steadfast, he is hopeful, he is a God of covenant, he is a God of, our, of promises, and he is gonna use us, and he's gonna use our lives in the city of Houston and around in our local communities and in our nation, and he will do it by his power and by his spirit so he can receive the glory, amen? And the Lord has been working on me because you know what? I've been dealing with unbelief in my heart. It's been such a long time since the Lord had allowed me to be able to share the gospel with somebody. Or it's been so long in which I've been able just to influence and just to be a part of the city and of its heartbeat. And the Lord has just masterfully just um, answered some of these prayers, even just this week of just saying, yes, he still delights in using sinful, broken people like me. I was at a vigil um, for... Uh, my friend's aunts who, their uncle and aunt were brutally murdered a few years ago. And after, this, after the vigil, I was trying to encourage, before I had to encourage one of the speakers who was just nervous. It was her first time speaking. And afterwards she said, how do you do it? How do you come? What's, is it just practice? Is it just familiarity? And I was like, no, I, I would not have been here. If you knew my hometown and you knew my, my life before this, I was a pretty nerdy kid. I was a pretty geeky kid, like Flint Lockwood, <laughs> although I didn't invent spray-on shoots. Um, I was a nerdy kid, and uh, I liked reading almanacs for fun. Um, <laughs> I just loved facts and history, and, and um, my clothes didn't match, and, uh, and, and I was just really awkward. I just wanted to play computer games all day. 
And I said, it was nothing less than the power of God that is with me as I'm listening to him. I'm still fighting the, the, the root of unbelief. But it was in that moment that the Lord was just reminding me, you are still being used. And I was able to just share with her a little bit of the gospel and about God and his work in my life. And I want to encourage you today, tonight, where are the areas in which the Lord was impressing upon your heart of unbelief? And where do you need to war against unbelief? Where you need to put it to death? As we come and as we stand, and as the music team, team is already here, and um, as our prayer team comes forward, let's just um, stand and, um, or even sit wherever you want to do. Um, but let's come before the Lord in prayer, asking God to root out and war against unbelief. I want to invite you to come, and we'd love to pray for you for anything, anything that's in your heart, but especially anything in, in terms of unbelief and warring for you and pursuing the gospel together, pursuing Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I thank you that you're causing us to war against unbelief. You're causing us to war against um, not believing you to be true as you have said and put forth in your word. You're doing the work in here that I cannot understand and none of us can see, but Lord, you are doing it, God. You are using this church body to touch broken lives. You are using this church family to minister to the hurting. You are encouraging people. Even right now, I speak comfort, your spirit of comfort to be upon those who are downcast, who are going through transitions, who are going through struggles that they don't even know how to describe. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in power tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Come quickly as you pray, as we come together, as we worship together. Surrounding me, let it breathe.